Welcome to the Learning Reinvented podcast brought to you by myself, James Politilo, and the team from The Learning Effect. There are lots of learning podcasts out there, so we wanted to do something slightly different. This week, we're speaking to Phil Allen to understand a little bit more about what drives him and also to find out a little bit more about deliberate practice. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Hi, James. Nice to be on today. Thank you very much for joining us. Do you want to introduce yourselves and tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself? Yes, so I'm Phil Allen and I uh, am an occupational psychologist by background. I've been in learning and development for probably 25 years since completing my, my degrees um, and uh, have been in consulting. Uh, we spent some time in-house with Travis Perkins as a, an organisation, which was a, a great organisation to be part of, very down-to-earth type of uh, a business to be in. Um, and for the last uh, two or three years, I've been running my own business called Practice Room Online. So across that 25-year career, Phil, you've obviously experienced lots of things in organisational structure, learning, the way we approach things. So how's that shaped your thinking about what should happen and learning at work? So for me, I have I really enjoyed the time that I have been in learning and development. Um, I started more on the sort of change management side of things and more and more realised that the values that I had were about making a difference, about helping people to be the best version of themselves. I know that's a bit of a trite phrase, but it absolutely feels real for me. Um, I loved those days and those programs where you saw people change and grow and become something that without being part of that program, they perhaps might not have reached. Just yesterday, I was delivering something and half of, half of the people on the, the program talked about the confidence change that had happened in them over the last uh, sort of two or three months that we've been running that program. And I left that with a massive grin. So making a difference to people was something that I always wanted to do. And that's a very deep value. When uh, I was when I left Travis Perkins for that, you can meet read made redundant. I was able to take some time to think about what is it that I want to do going forward that is really going to make a difference. And I looked at that from the perspective of, well, what's made the difference for people in the past? When I've really seen that change happen, what's been driving it? And I came to a decision, a decision, a revelation that actually it wasn't me standing at the front of the room spouting off theory and model that made the difference. It wasn't whether I taught people the grow model or the instant payoff model or um, help them understand um, particular models of, of feedback. It was when they had had the opportunity to practice, to do something, and most importantly, to get feedback on how they were performing and try again that's when it made a difference. And a particular program that I used to run when I was at PA Consulting was a, a coaching for consultants program over three days. They had about seven practice sessions during those three days. The first one, you saw them just fumbling around at coaching skills. And by the, the third, they were starting to get the concept of not giving advice. And by the fourth and fifth, they were using really good questions. And, and by the seventh, you saw a complete change to how they were. That's what I realised made the difference, the opportunity to practice, get feedback um, and try again. 
It's interesting that you raise that because I've seen so many programmes over the years where, you know, it's forced knowledge input with almost the practice left at, at the end or, you know, again, people will say, oh, we don't like role play or we don't like any of these things. And and people will therefore almost unpick those parts of the programme. So you walk away with, I've had lots of models, I've lo had lots of theory and then sent back into my busy world, probably not particularly well set up for the programme in some cases. And now I've got to go off and remember to put these things into practice because that's what we all say at the end of a programme. You know, the important bit is you go back and put this into practice. So the phrase is there. But I, I you know, I take your point that maybe the, the practice itself of making that happen is not as embedded in lots of learning programmes as it should be. It's it's a real it, I've, I've stood at the end of a programme and said, right, now go and do this with your people. Now go and, and try this with your teams. And I realised that what I was actually saying was now go and fail live. And I don't think people should fail live. I think that the, the purpose of L&D is to give people a safe space to try things out, get feedback on how they're doing, try it again, make mistakes, doesn't matter. There's no consequences of those in those spaces. And one of the reasons why, and you describe the situation, we dump a load of knowledge and then do a little bit of practice sort of at the end. And why, why people talk about not liking role plays, because they're not done very well. Um, and I have walked into those rooms where you've got this triad sitting there and you've asked them to practice something and you've gone around to check on how people are doing and you've walked in and gone, so how's the practice going? Well, we're not really practicing, but we're having a really good chat about it. And th that's not the point. That really isn't the point of why we are here, because having a really good chat about it is not going to help you when you get back into the workplace and have to do this for real. So I wanted really to focus the business that we've now got practice room online on making practice easily accessible, uh, making it real and powerful um, and giving people the opportunity to see their improvement in a, in a single hour as, as we often run um, in order that they can then do it for real with confidence and with capability already embedded. Um, and for that, and one of the reasons why those triads don't work is because you're practicing with a colleague, a mate, and you know, Steve from accounts isn't very good at role playing really because he can't play anybody else but Steve from accounts. Well, we use actors um, who can play anybody you need them to be, and, and that's what makes the difference and that's what makes it real. So give people the opportunity to practice when you're with them live. Uh, we've talked before, James, about content. Content's available wherever it needs to be now. It, it's really, really easy. Don't spend any time when you're together in a learning and development situation teaching content. The content should be there beforehand. Give people the opportunity and the experiences to practice with. Yeah, and I, I think that's the challenge, isn't it? That we go from thinking about where people have come into learning and development. So the people have come from an Oxic or a, more of a coaching background. There's people who come from a subject matter expert background there's people who've come from and I was thinking about this when I was chatting with someone yesterday about some people have just come into learning and development effectively they're account managers they don't really do learning and development they just procure and knit together a set of services so they're more of a procurement function and some people are building those multifunctional teams from the bottom up so with all of those facets it's how do you then knit together within your particular model that ability to get the right content because one of the challenges is 
you know, there's, as you said, so much content out there. But people always go, oh, it's not quite right for us. So we'll spend a lot of time and effort bespoking that content where there's no real value in bespoking that content. So in my view, we should spend more time on taking some generic content, bolting around the edges, the stuff that actually really makes a difference here. Because, you know, stuff will be the same in most places, but then the contextual stuff, you should put some in input around people do that outside of you know at their own time own pace in their own way and contact time like you said should be about practice yeah or or about consolidating and understanding that learning that people have done and again one of those traditional things you see is people turn up having not done the pre-work or not done this and i think that's because we've never set that as an expectation that contact time is value time is part of a bigger process you learn some stuff, we help you consolidate it, we help you practice, we give you feedback, you go back empowered and, and to deliver something better. But so many learning functions are a way away from that. There's some that are great at it, but it's it's really unpicking those things and thinking about how your structure, your people, your skills and your roles of the future. So what does your learning team need to be able to do to facilitate and deliver that model? I think there's some real challenges for people on how that works. And I think that we have done this to ourselves. We have set people up to come to a learning e event with a view that they're going to be very passive. They're going to sit there and hear stuff and, and have someone talk at them and share stuff with them. And actually, we need to turn that round and, and give the, uh, the view that, no, this is an active learning event. You are going to be doing stuff the whole time. And from that doing, you're going to be you're going to be learning. At my most militant, when I talk about content, I talk about there is no need for any content. I, 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 when I'm really pushing uh, the boundaries of this, I say that you could run a learning event without any content at all. You could simply give people the opportunity to practice, give them fantastic feedback. The feedback may include a bit of guidance and nudging and advice on, on how they could do things better. But the very fact of trying something, getting feedback, trying again, getting feedback, trying again, you are going to improve in that. No matter whether you know the SBI model of feedback or not, you could get better at giving feedback without any of that content and input at all. So and the other thing that I say is that content is all around us. Everybody has all the content they need literally in the palm of their hand, um, YouTube and you know, LinkedIn learning and a lot of the other free resources are so available. And yet a lot of L&D budget and money is spent on buying content libraries from people. There's a huge business in that, which is repackaged stuff that they've got from elsewhere. You mentioned the other C word, which is context. That to me is really important. People can find whatever content they want. L&D should be giving people context that says in our business, this is how we want you to do things. Um, now practice against that. Now, now try that out. Now rehearse against that before we throw you back in, into the big world and, and fail live with your teams. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you because I think far too much time spent on content, content libraries. You know, again, people burn billions of dollars, pounds, whatever on content libraries across the world. The quality of the content in those is not necessarily great. I'm not a massive fan of 
LinkedIn Learning, when I've looked through lots of their courses, they actually take you to a very basic level of stuff. So they're, they're more introductory programs. When we're on to the type of stuff you're talking about, people, as you said, have a base level. They have a base level of knowledge around giving feedback, around managing, around coaching, around any of those things that we're working on. But it's then how do we raise them up to that next level without just loading them full of models, but maybe tweaking their performance or their application of that knowledge or having that ability to pull back out the bits that they are focusing on. So I think there's a huge amount of stuff we could do on there. And I, I would absolutely focus on context being key and also relevance. You know, I think painting that line of relevance to the person so that they understand why this skill is important or, or why this is going to help me or my team or whatever the output is. Because I think if people haven't bought into the relevance of something, don't understand that context to then get them to practice and, and take this seriously and put in, in some effort and go back and, and change that behaviour is, is more difficult in my view. Absolutely. And, and we often use the, the analogy around sport and uh, or, or music. I'm a drummer myself, but in sport, music, acting, uh, practice is what you do for training. You, training is practice. Um, there is once you've got to a certain level of understanding how to hold a racket uh, and where where to hit a ball within the the tennis court. From then onwards, your training is about practice. It's about hitting that ball across the net. Um, you know time and time and time and time again, getting feedback from someone who can help because they understand what you're doing and how you could do it better. But it's about you feeling how you are doing that for yourself. Everybody's physical body is different and therefore how I hold and hit a tennis ball is going to be different from from how someone else does. I have to feel what it feels like for me to get across and to take the points around context and relevance. When you get to higher levels in sport, you train for the next match or for the next competition. So you train for grass at Wimbledon. You train for um, whatever they train. They use a clay in 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 France. Um, so you know that that is the relevance that you are practicing for the particular situation that you're in, and you're thinking about that. So when we we talk about practice within what we do. We talk, we use the term deliberate practice, um, which came from Anders Ericsson's work, which was sort of taken by Malcolm Gladwell in the Outliers book in the 10,000 hours. Actually, what Anders Ericsson was was talking about was not that that headline number, but about the quality of your practice um, and the deliberate nature of it. And what Anders Ericsson talks about is practice needs to be with purpose, first of all. So why are we doing this? The second thing that practice needs to be is it needs to be in a safe space so that you're not performing real. You don't practice on center court. You have practice courts, surprisingly enough, that are called that. Um, so it needs to be in a safe space where you're not going to where you can you can make mistakes and it doesn't matter. The third thing that deliberate practice needs is it needs to be doing things that are more difficult all the time. So you trying things that are that you can't yet do and working on those things rather than the things you can do. So it needs to be pushing yourself all the time. And the fourth thing, which is very important in our context, is feedback. You need to have feedback on how you are doing and how you are performing. Um, and it needs to be from somebody else. It's very, very difficult to 
to have that level of self-awareness when you're practicing something to look at what you are doing personally and decide whether that's that's getting better or not. So the whole concept of, you know, practicing in, in a mirror for a presentation doesn't work because you can't practice and give yourself feedback on how you're coming across. It needs someone else to give you that feedback. So those are the four elements that Anders Ericsson talked about in deliberate practice. And to me, those are the things that need to be incorporated in every single learning intervention uh, that we even think about. No, I absolutely, you know, hear and agree with with your your approach to that. I'm also, as you're talking, reflecting on organisations, and you know, you're talking about, you know, we you you build up in tennis to the next tournament, so you know, building up to perform in Australia or whatever you happen to be doing, and you are focused on knowing when that performance is going to be. I think just reflecting back on being in organisations, often we don't know when our performance is going to be, you know, so things come at us more, so we're not building up to necessarily key events. So it's actually being able to step back and go, these things are happening to us all the time. I'm presenting all the time. You know, you might have your big presentation to the board. You might have you know, a particular element you're doing, but it's being able to step back and, and help people re recognise those things that are happening on a daily basis that actually maybe our performance isn't where it should be and the step change in performance, because that, that to me is is getting the people out of the rut of work, being too busy to step and take the time back to go a little time saved by purposefully looking at some deliberate practice, setting myself some goals, taking some time out, you know, investing time in me, getting someone else to give me feedback because that's going to make my life better over time. And I think that's sometimes why these things don't happen in work because yeah. we're just on this constant treadmill and occasionally, you know, an L&D program gets put in because we're trying to shift the balance, but contextually, it's not happening all the time. It's not part of what we're doing in the organisation. And I, I think that's where, um, and I'm, I'm not, I know one of your previous people talked about learning in the flow of work. Um, and there's a lot of move, us our move towards that. And also Nick Shackleton-Jones's resources, not courses, giving people the thing they need at the time that they need it. Um, to my mind, if you know you've got a challenging conversation to have at the end of the week, whether that be a sales conversation or uh, I've got to give someone some difficult feedback or even I've got to let someone go. I've got to make someone redundant, a conversation that's going to be really difficult for you and you want to get it right for all the right reasons. You want to make sure that the person leaving the business feels great about it. You want to win that sale. You want to make sure that feedback is heard. Well, wouldn't it be a good idea if you could practice that? a couple of days before or even a few hours before you actually went and did that conversation and wouldn't it be great if you could practice it with someone who could make it feel real for you and that and that was the concept really behind what we're what we're doing is to provide people with the opportunity to practice at the point they need it and this is something that L&D also needs to, to do is they need to be able to provide those resources at the point of need um, and if we can we can weave that in rather than taking people out on a this is how you give feedback course uh, they go back into the workplace and we always say, why don't you try that out? And, you know, give someone some feedback this week and it just doesn't happen because they haven't got the need at that point because we've taken them out of the course. Let's turn that round. They've got the need, provide them with the resource at the point that they need it. And then they're going to really make use of it and see the value of it at that time. No, absolutely. And, you know, one of my 
pet bugbears when I was managing in-house teams where you get things like HR training, you know, you get trained on every HR process. You go through recruitment training and you're not going to recruit for a while or you go through discipline and grievance training. And to me, it was far more about let's separate the knowledge, the process, the detailed knowledge and the skills that you need. So actually being able to interview is a, is a pretty core skill across all of those. So if we separate that out and help people practice and build that skill, then the contextual elements of how I apply that interviewing skill in a disciplinary investigation compared to a recruitment interview, compared to a performance review, whatever it happens to be, can be more contextually applied. But we, you can actually build the practice in to build the skill and build the confidence that I know how to ask good questions, I know how to listen yeah. because I'm building it in at a relevant time. Whereas what we'll do is go, Go on a one day discipline and grievance course, go on a one day recruitment course, etc. And we end up repeating a lot of the whole the same stuff. We give them a load of content and knowledge they're never going to remember and don't need to remember. They probably just need to know the basics of the rules, when to spot and when to where to go if they need to look at something that might be a disciplinary issue. So again, I think we get the whole focus of what we're trying to do because we're coming from an educative exam passing provide knowledge not at you know it's almost cramming for exams it, it yeah. is underpinning a lot of what we're doing not as you said learning to perform for the french open wimbledon or whatever your work-based equivalent of that is and the interesting thing about this this sort of separation of knowledge and the skills i mean uh, soft skills if you read any article at the moment and i i, I know people hate that phrase soft skills but let's use it um is or are one of the most important set of skills that, that leaders need, bar none, but becoming more and more important because of the way that we're leading, we're leading virtually and, and in those environments. Um, the knowledge bit, um, this is what we need to do for a grievance, this is how you do an interview, this is the forms that you need to complete, can be just available where, where, where and when you need it. Um, but talking to an HR director just the other day, they said HR is really good at providing that process and this is how you do things. This is what to say. This is what not to say. This is the forms you need to complete. This is how you need to do it. But when going through some of those difficult, challenging conversations like grievance or letting someone go, the issues that occur afterwards, the, the grievances that happen as a result of these conversations are never about getting the process wrong. They're always about how the manager or leader had that conversation, whether they were empathetic enough, whether they um, whether it just felt cold and off and, and un uncomfortable, whether they were unconfident and therefore they made mistakes as they were delivering it. The, the HR director actually said we're really good in HR providing all of the ways of doing it, but the single point of failure is always the manager delivering that conversation in the end. If we can help that manager to have that conversation better by them having practiced it, by them having felt what didn't work, by getting feedback from someone that said, well, when you said this, it made me feel that, that would stop a lot of the, the issues that HR get afterwards of having to deal with the grievance that comes after a, a bad conversation and the cost that goes with that. So that, that I think is a, a place where we separate the knowledge and the skill. We often train the knowledge bit, but we're not training the the, the skill bit in, in anywhere near enough ways. Because being empathetic, being 
um, confident in that situation. It's not an easy thing. It doesn't come naturally to most people. I think it doesn't come nat naturally to most people, but it's also probably undervalued that people will look at it and say, well, you know, it's not necessarily that important because we don't necessarily invest in things beforehand. We, we, you know, rather than lead, we bleed the consequences as you've just talked about. So rather than take that time to spend, you know, an hour, a couple of hours with that manager getting ready for that conversation, we probably spend, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 hours of their time, someone in HRs, maybe an employment lawyer, who knows, dealing with the consequences afterwards, where it could have been a very simple investment up front, but our mindset is not in that space. You know, we're, we're not necessarily looking at how we invest in the right spaces. We, we just worry about the consequences and then we turn around and go, oh, we're not very good at disciplines and grievances. So we either lock it down and go, no one can do this apart from a few select people, or we then dunk, you know, 400 line managers through a discipline and grievance course completely out of context with when they're going to do their yeah. next discipline and grievance or you know we've put that programmatic approach in so you know if imagine you're stuck in an organization that's got that sort of mindset and and you know you're, you're sat here listening to you and there's a few sparks going off and light bulbs happening what would your advice be to someone who's sat in that L&D seat about how they can move towards you know, more deliberate practice, change their approach to some of these things if they are wedded to, you know, a system with lots of content libraries and some of those things that we've maybe been a bit disparaging of earlier on in our conversation. I think the first thing to do is to have a look at what are we currently delivering? How much of our contact, contact time is, um, is practice, is doing stuff, and how much of it is content delivery during that time. That would be the first thing I'd, I'd want people to think about. And I'd really genuinely want people to go to the end of 90, 95% of your contact time should be doing stuff and practice. That that would be, you know, I think people would find that difficult, but let's let's set that as a goal. So first of all, look at how much practice you're actually incorporating. The second thing is think about the best way of delivering that practice. We talked about deliberate practice and the four things that Anders Ericsson talks about. It needs to have decent feedback for a start. So how are you going to ensure that someone, when they're practicing something, gets decent feedback? And whilst, James, we've all run those triads, um, they can work and I, I've seen them work really valuably. You have to make sure that the people in there are good at giving each other feedback. That's to me is really important and comfortable doing that. Um, what we do is obviously we have a, a trained practice coach who is trained to give feedback. So that's that's different. But make sure that the giving of feedback is a really important part of that. And the third thing I would I would suggest people do is, as we've just been talking about, think about when that is needed. It is not about putting on a course at a certain time and expecting people to attend that. I think we're moving beyond that sort of mindset in L&D now anyway. But how do I provide those moments, those hours of practice at the point that someone needs it? Maybe in L&D and HR, we should be having people come to us and go, oh, you know, Phil, I've got this really difficult conversation that I need to have. Can you help me with that? Well, that's the point that we should be providing just not content, not no, this is the process you need to follow, but shall we practice that? Um, 
Uh, HR are not necessarily very good at that, but perhaps there are some people in HR that would feel really comfortable to help someone practice that conversation. I think that would be a brilliant way of, of actually delivering that sort of, 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 of content and input. Um, and the, the final thing is, is, a, is the big thing, which is actually changing the culture around how people are learning. We have encouraged people to think about courses as something that you turn up and someone talks at me and I sit very passively. We have to change that. Getting better at something takes effort. Um, practice is effortful. We have to, we, to encourage people to think about that putting in the effort will enable them to be better. And that's what we're there to do. So L&D needs to think about how we support, encourage and motivate people to put in that, that effort in order to become better at something and not expect them to be passive receivers of, of knowledge and, and stuff. That to me is the bigger change that needs to happen. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, you know, I absolutely agree with that effort point and, you know, the feedback point as well. There's so many elements I, I, I could talk about, but, you know, you'll hear these mantras of learning should be easy. And, and I agree, learning should be easy, but that's where you're talking about a particular structure of, you know, resources, not courses, you know, learning in the flow of work. There needs to be an ease of being able to access learning when you need it. But changing and doing something to learn takes effort, as you said. It's, so I think sometimes those two things are confused. And I almost call it the service element and the learning element. And, you know, when, when I came into learning, I came from a service background. You know, I was in retail. I, I am still strongly driven by service and it drives me absolutely insane when I see ridiculous processes or processes that are built around the learning team not about the business you're supporting or the learner and that to me is the easy bit of learning because that's about creating seamless service seamless processes easy to access stuff it shouldn't be hidden behind lots of walls it but again in the same way when you're going to put time and effort into learning it shouldn't be something that you can just turn up sit there go through your emails you should be engaged you should be practicing and all of those things you've talked about now i think that's sometimes the challenge for learning is that they've got both of those things ease and difficulty and they should be applied appropriately in the right place yeah. and, and I, I i i love youtube uh for its accessibility and this is the it, you know youtube is it is so easy to access so that's the ease bit of of, of l and d I, I i it's easy to access it's easy to search for the right things that's what's great about it but one of my hobbies is a little bit of woodwork so I can watch um, one of the YouTube woodworkers do a tenon and mortise joint, which is where you, you cut in a certain way so that two pieces of wood fit together and they fit together nice and tight. That doesn't then mean that having watched that video, I can then go into my workshop and cut that tenon and, tenon and mortise joint first time. Um, I would tend to get a really crappy piece of wood and make few mistakes with it, get it wrong before I went anywhere near the nice piece of wood that I'm trying to, to work with. Um, it is hard work and I got it wrong a lot and I've messed up some nice pieces of wood as well in trying to do that. But the what the ease of watching the YouTube video was great. That was that's that's what making learning easy is.
but then I had to put in significant effort in order to become better. We talk a lot about behaviour change in, in learning and development. And, and if we're not about changing behaviour, then what are we here for is sort of what I think anyway. But if we want to help people to change behaviour, we have to let them know that it's going to be hard work, that they're going to have to do something, get feedback, try again, fail, get it wrong, get some more feedback, try again. That is how they're going to change behaviour and how we're going to do things. Sitting them in a classroom, downloading a load of stuff into their heads and sending them back into the workplace is not going to change behaviour. No, absolutely. And, you know, taking your YouTube example. So going back to when I was in a real world L&D role internally and we we created a lot of content for people around practical skills of what people, you know, so we created that contextual information as to how to carry out particular tasks within the business. And we got feedback back that, you know, it was fine. People were flying through it. And then we had other feedback that people were watching the videos 10, 20, 30 times. There must be something wrong with the video. And I'm like, no, there's nothing wrong with the video. If you're actually going to speak to those people, they are going through the video time and time again because they're using it as a reference. They're practicing alongside the video. So they're putting it into context. So they are taking that time, whereas the, the initial thought was, there's, why someone watching something more than once, there's got to be a challenge because there was this tick box mentality of, I just fly through learning, it should be easy. It should be something I can just digest, almost sit and put on, you know, whilst I'm on the, on the tube or the train or, you know, whatever I'm having to do. And I can just watch something and I, that's it, that's it, I've done my learning. Whereas actually shown from our employees was the ones who were taking this seriously were the ones who were taking that content and putting it into practice in context and learning that skill and repeating and repeating and repeating and going through till they'd fine tune that. And therefore we were able to learn and use that to focus back to show these people are learning, it's delivering in business results, this is the way to approach this. And it wasn't coming from us, it was coming from the teams themselves who were showing that practice was what it needed. And you couldn't just watch something once and like you know, say, you said, go off and put together a particular joint within woodwork or deliver a particular, you know, skill within a kitchen or whatever it was happened to be that we were trying to get people to understand. It was the practice element that was key to that. Yeah, un unfortunately, to, to come on to another reference, uh, the matrix where you can just download how to fly a helicopter and, and immediately you can fly that helicopter. Um, I think sometimes that's what we think that learning is when we're watching these these videos. That's not <laughs> the matrix isn't real life. Um, you know, in, if I'm learning to fly a helicopter, then I'm going to do those things time and time and time and time again alongside an instructor who's going to tell me what to do and what not to do um, and give me feedback on how I'm doing before he lets me get anywhere near taking that helicopter off at my own and, and flying off against aliens or whatever happens in the Matrix. But <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's the, the, the thing. The content needs to provide uh, good structure that people can follow. The other thing in, in soft skills to take it away from the matrix is, is that actually we need to find what our own voice is in these scenarios. So how to ask good questions. We can give people, you know, structure and, and use the what, when, why, where, how, who set of questions. But people have to work out what that sounds like in their own voice and, and how that comes across from them. And all of us are different and we're not trying to train people and to do it everything the same way. 
So to practice what it feels like for me to say those questions as opposed to James to say those questions is always going to be a bit different. But I need to practice it, feel what it sounds like and potentially get some feedback from someone else as to when I've got it right. That to me is what's really important about that practice is making it your own and personalising. Yeah, it's an element of experimentation in there, isn't it? It's not just following that right way. You can actually try this out. You're testing yourself. You're exploring those boundaries and getting to that comfortable space yes. where performance is working for you. Yeah, it, to me, it's it's a really uh, it's a key element of this and and people getting feedback. The, the other thing that, that we talk about in, in our situation is it increases people's emotional intelligence as well to have feedback given in, in this sort of way, because when we give our practice coaches give feedback, they say, when you said this, it made me feel that. Now, no one in the normal workplace gives that sort of feedback. There's no line report at the end of a performance review who said, thanks for my performance review, Mrs. Manager. Can I just give you some feedback on how you handled it um, or how you made me feel? No one's going to say that. And there's a reason why we don't do that, because we've got a longer term relationship with that manager. Um, so the, the idea of creating these feedback cultures, I think, is very laudable. I don't think it's that possible because we have this longer term relationship. But having someone who gives you that feedback when you said this, it made me feel that that's really powerful and it increases your emotional intelligence because, ah, I now know that when I say this, the emotion that I'm creating in someone else is that that's a that's a very fundamental part of emotional intelligence for me. And, and that is another element of this practicing with somebody else that you get um, that I, that you will never get from watching a video on how to be more empathetic for example no I absolutely agree with you and we you know one of my things i talk about often is feedback and that most people aren't qualified to give feedback because they're not interested enough they don't feel confident enough they're too attached into the emotional relationship you know so if someone goes into the real world environment into that meeting and is looking for feedback and most of the feedback they will get will be quite trite quite superficial you did a great you did a great job well done i would say to people if you've got those people who maybe take that time to unpick your performance to who maybe put aside some of those things and give you that feedback who maybe give you the hard messages when no one else will who who give you something that can help build your performance in the future those are people to keep very close to you as well, because like you said, it's a rarity in the real world for to get that quality of feedback. It's great to have it in practice, but when you do get into that meeting you've been practicing for, if you've got someone in there as well who's who's going to give you that balanced feedback, which is constructive and you can do something with and isn't just a bit of a pat on the back. I think those people are a rarity that you should hang on to as well. And it's I absolutely agree that if we could get those situ those people in those situations, that would be fantastic. The interesting thing is that, again, what Ericsson talks about is the safe space to practice. Um, and uh, we need to create those safe spaces away from the performance side of things. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to get better when you're performing when you're out there in the real world because there are too many other consequences about what you are doing and you're so busy on performing there's no way you can reflect on how you are performing whereas in a safe space where the the outcome is not about performing and achieving the goal getting the sale whatever it is but the outcome is only to learn how i'm doing it 
then you can really focus on what you are doing and how you are doing it in order to achieve that goal more than whether I'm achieving the goal or not, which is what happens in the performance environment mm. opposed to the safe practice environment. That's what we that's what we need to create that that space to do that. No, it's it's been absolutely fascinating, Phil, to catch up with you, and I'm sure we could carry on for another hour or so. But to to keep this sort of wrapped up, I think we'll draw a line under it there. But if anyone wants to get in touch with you, find out more about deliberate practice or the work you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, so obviously LinkedIn, I'm Phil Allen on LinkedIn. You'll see my tagline as the practice guy. Um, so if you're looking for that, that's what I come up as. Um, and the business that uh, we rerun is Practice Room Online, which you'll find at practiceroomonline.com. Uh, we recently published an ebook, uh, which is available on our website uh, about deliberate practice and how businesses can better incorporate that and, and L&D can incorporate that. Um, so feel free to go to the website and download that. I'd be happy to have a conversation with anybody. As you probably heard, James, I've got a bit of a, a passion for practice. Absolutely. It's great to hear that passion. What we'll do is make sure that all of those links are in the show notes below. So thank you for joining us today, Phil. No problem at all. It's been fun talking to you, James. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Learning Reinvented podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you've not already done so, please follow our podcast. And if the learning effect can help you and your organisation, please do get in touch. You can find both James and Katie on LinkedIn and our contact details are in the show notes below.